Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. Good Books Radio is a production of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley as a service to the community and public radio. With me today is Christine Forner, MSWRSW, who has more than 17 years of clinical experience working with individuals with trauma, PTSD, traumatic dissociation, and developmental trauma. Christine works in private practice at Associated Counseling in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. She has presented locally and internationally on issues of traumatic dissociation and mindfulness and is the current treasurer for the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. The book is Dissociation, Mindfulness, and Creative Meditations. Christine, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Great. I'm, I'm really glad to have you on the show, and I'm also fascinated by uh, the way you laid this out for us um, in the book. I would like to start with mindfulness uh, and, and then uh, the chapter on the nine uh, characteristics of mindfulness before we get into dissociation. So you talk about mindfulness, and you, and you make it clear that there's a distinction here between mindful meditation and things we might consider from, say, Eastern religions. That's correct. So um, there's many roads to the land of mindfulness. Meditation is just one. Mm-hmm. Um, so what mindfulness is, is it's actually an altered state of, uh, you can say consciousness, or it just it's an altered state of our neurophysiology. And in this particular state, we're using very specific parts of our brain that uh, they're higher developed parts of our brain, so children really don't have the same access to these brain structures um, until they're 20 or 25 years old, and then we start to develop these grander brain structures that really seem to play a part in raising our young and being involved in complex social groups. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's go there for a moment to the, the parts of the brain, because, you, you know, you, you lay out the, the notion of the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and, and the prefrontal cortex, the human part that develops over time. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Um, well, really, there's, it's called the truant brain, and it's, it's, it was been discovered for quite a while now that we seem to have three brains on top of each other. So there's a reptilian brain on the base, then there is a mammalian brain that wraps around that brain, and then there's the human brain that wraps around those two. And the the structures of this brain are basically uh, the same structures that reptiles have or mammals have, and then us uh, as humans have a unique brain structure. And the reptilian brain is very reactive. It's very basic. It's very it's about survival. It's about fighting and fleeing and reproduction and existing and um, then you have the mammal brain, which is much more about attachment for a uh, for a while. So not all animals attach to each other forever. Humans attach to each other forever. Um, and there is emotional uh, component to the these lower brains. So when we are um, raising our young, they are those two bottom brains are the ones that are pretty much formed when we're born, and then that last brain takes 25 years to grow. Mm-hmm. And the the reptilian brain is is a, in survival mode a lot. It's it's all about the fight or flight syndrome, isn't it? 
Fight, flight, and freeze. Mm -hmm. Freeze is the one that most people don't really have a good concept of and don't understand um, what its basic structure is. But yes, it is the fight, the flight, the freeze, and survival and basic, um, like what keeps our heart pumping, what makes our stomach digest, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about freeze a little bit because you you describe uh, an attack of a tiger and uh, why there is a freeze component. Well, we really do seem to have two pathways to escape danger. We have an active way of escaping danger, and in those active ways, that's where you get your need to run or your your impulse to fight or panic. Panic is a part of our defense system as well. It's uh, typically what is reserved for smaller children and infants. So when they're scared, they reach out to the nearest human, so a lot of people when they're having a panic attack, it actually is likely um, a structure inside their body that is feeling very, very alone and so alone that they feel threatened that they want to reach out to other people. And then you have your inactive defenses, which, um, you know, if you're running from the tiger, that's actually you still have a chance of getting away. When you get uh, when you get closer to the tiger, fighting might give you a chance to get away. But if that tiger gets you, then you are left with nothing else but to manage being stuck in a tiger's mouth. And when we are stuck in a tiger's mouth, anything that has to do with activation, so the running and the um, and or fighting, when you're inside a predator's mouth, likely will get us hurt faster. So what the human body does and what the mammalian bodies do and what reptilian bodies do is that they freeze. They go into tonic immobility or um, feign death or complete submission or um, a lot of shame comes out of those inactive defenses to make the body become stiller or to make the body, um, to make the person sort of remove from themselves to not feel their feelings so that um, the tiger, I think, or the predators, it's it's got to be part of um, believing that the, the prey is actually dead mm-hmm. or that um, it tries to prolong as much as it can in an inescapable situation. And predators, in particular tigers, you mentioned, uh, they prefer live uh, uh, meat. <laughs> a lot of a lot of predators prefer live animals. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's not very many predators that prefer um, uh, an animal that has passed already. Mm-hmm. Now, you also talk about under mindfulness, the body is continually sending information to the brain, and the brain reacts to what's being communicated, and there's this notion of homeostasis and how the muscles feel and, and paying attention to all of that. What, what, uh, what do we need to glean from all of that, being mindful of how, what we feel and why we feel and all that? Well, our first language really is sensation and emotion. So the first three years of life, before words and language and context of those words and language start coming in, our first and primary language, so it's our first language, which means it's our strongest language, is our sensory emotional selves, how we feel about things. And um, as a human being, we are supposed to be at one with those sensations and emotions. Um, they are as powerful pieces of information as a thought. Um, actually, probably even more so because they're more primitive um, and more hardwired into who we are. Thinking is pretty cultural and can be very um, different from culture to culture, but those hardwired sensations and emotions, that's, that's universal. That's part of the human being package. And uh, when we are mindful, we're including our sensations. So we'll understand 
what the rumbling in our tummy is. We'll we'll know what warning signals or what um, caution signals uh, emotional pain is giving us. Or um, it being mindful can help us work through something like grief in a way that is actually life producing rather than um, the paralyzing grief that a lot of people experience. So what what mindfulness does is it helps us become at one with our sensory and emotional selves. Mm-hmm. And you have a chapter on this, uh, the medial prefrontal cortex and its functions, and uh, nine aspects of that that I, I'd love to go through a little bit here. Um, this is the part of the brain that develops uh, with the higher functioning aspects of the mind, um, and it's uh, part of integrating and processing trauma and uh, helping with pain and suffering. So it's a pretty important function to have and to have working well, and I know that you, you uh, dedicate a great deal of, of, of thought to the notion of preparing children so that they develop these, these functions. Uh, as part of what we do as humans is is have our children come to understand things, especially in the first three years of life when theirs isn't theirs isn't working at all yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the nine functions. So they basically, um, if we start from sort of the bottom to the top in how we process information or how we grow, the first thing that the human being needs to really learn to master is their own sense of fear. Um, I was just listening to the the book Homo Sapien. I can't remember who the author was, but he was talking about how human beings actually are not, have not spent most of our time, um, either near biologically or evolutionarily, in the top of the food chain. It's only been in the last maybe 10,000 years that we've been in the top of the food chain. Um, most of our time was spent in the middle of the food chain. So we are a very frightened animal. Mm-hmm. And what the medial prefrontal cortex does, and, and uh, quite a few other structures in the brain, they help us manage our own fear to be able to remove us from that mammalian reaction of terror and gives us an opportunity to go, okay, why am I so scared? What do I need to make myself less scared? It's a very sophisticated task, um, and it's quite possible with mindfulness. Mm-hmm. The next thing that it does is also manages our emotions. So it helps us understand why we feel the brutal feelings that we can feel. Um, one of the, the most difficult feelings for human beings to manage is vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And um, in managing the felt feeling of vulnerability, which is very, very scary, mindfulness can help us understand, yes, we are vulnerable, and this is what we need to do with our vulnerability in order to move beyond the knowledge that we're vulnerable. So, um, for example, um, we're the only species that we know of that understands that we're going to die one day. It takes a lot of um, mental strength to be able to get through your day every day with this in the background, but not in the front foreground, so that if it's in the foreground, we cannot reach our developmental uh, capacities when we're scared. We can only reach these things when we're safe and secure. And so understanding how to manage those emotions um, to remain safe and secure for yourself and others is a very important human task. 
And then it also does things like um, it, it helps us take a mental pause to figure out what is actually really going on here. Is this the current things that are upsetting me or past things that are upsetting me? Because human beings learn from the past to the present. Everything that happens to us is recorded somewhere inside of us. And so everything, even if we can't remember what happened when we were kids, the events of those experiences are there. They're in our bodies. They're in our fascia. They're in everything that... Um, they're the sort of the foundation of what makes us us. And it's very hard to understand how those younger years impact our older years without mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, a, that's a big deal because you, you talk about intense emotions, aftermath of child abuse or interpersonal violence or domestic violence, uh, trauma or neglect. And we don't know what we're feeling unless our, uh, our mindfulness is well developed in that. Yeah, that's true, because when, we, when we're when we scared, when we move into these different states of active or inactive defenses, the brain structure actually turns off some of the brain structures or cuts off information to other brain structures. And so when we're scared, we can't fully know what's going on, and it's not good to fully know what's going on, because if you fully know what's going on, you're going to realize you're in a whole lot of trouble, and you become ineffectual in taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. So the mindful brain is really helpful to processing information post injury or post stress mm-hmm. and um yeah so it, it 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 helps us it's one of the things that helps us get through this the stress and the difficulty that we experience as a homo sapien mm-hmm. and uh, ta- talking about response flexibility um and one of the things that I, I thought was was poignant is is that we're not naturally a violent species which is why we're bothered by human cruelty at, at any level Exactly, right? Like if if you um, take a look at animals that are quote-unquote more violent, and they're not really violent, humans are a very violent creature, but um, our violence tends to come from our defenses, not our everyday ordinary consciousness. It's not our baseline. So if we are being violent or approaching things from a violent way or approaching things from a fearful way, we're only using a small percentage of our of our whole brain not the whole brain that can manage a nonviolent solution to whatever is is causing us distress. Mm-hmm. And under the regulation of procedural learning and conditioned fear response, there's a powerful part to me about about children. As children, we cannot regulate our fear or emotions or take a mental pause. And so when they're left alone at under three years, it's not only physically dangerous, but threatens our sense of existence and identity. It, it, it actually threatens everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thalamus, which is a very important structure, it actually kind of scatters information when we're scared, and the thalamus becomes active, very active, and it plays a very uh, uh, important role in the whole dissociative process. And it, it, it there's a bunch of other brain structures, but simply... When we move into an inactive state of defense, information gets scattered. So we do not know what we feel, even if we feel something. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of us may leave our childhoods actually experiencing a great deal of stress, but not know that we've left a great deal of stress and not know why we do what we do. But the body, the mechanical part of the body, it's always trying to work this stuff out. And um, as a child, two feet of water is incredibly dangerous. Being alone is incredibly dangerous as a child, especially, you know, when you when we live and there's there's lots of places where we live where there's lots of predation with bugs and snakes and 
and other animals. So the human body um, is very hardwired to not be alone. Mm-hmm. And so if a, if a baby is left alone, then it has to grow in its defenses. It doesn't get a chance to grow in an ordinary state of consciousness. I, I don't want to get political, but I do want to ask about this uh, being alone because it, if something very near and dear to the Rio Grande Valley right now is the issue of immigrant and uh, uh, children seeking asylum being separated from their parents and what kind of damage that may cause long term. Um, well, I'm going to speak in generalities. I'm not going to speak in specifics because I, I don't know the situation. But the younger the child, the more they are left alone, the greater the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, they're at risk for so many things. So they're at risk. They're, they, kids do not know how to calm themselves down. They don't know how to talk to themselves. They don't know how to reassure themselves. It, the whole notion of a child self-soothing is not, like it's a myth. Kids, babies, and children cannot self-soothe. They don't have any of the brain structures that can come in and go, it's okay, calm down, mom and dad will come eventually. They don't have those thoughts. They're just alone. And their bodies react to that aloneness as uh, um, the amount of danger that they are in. Whereas, you know, if, if no one would ever leave a baby alone in Africa, no one ever leave a baby alone perhaps maybe in Australia or in South America where there's a much higher rate of, of natural animal predation. And the human body knows this, right? The human body is only safe in its own places. Sorry, I'm getting a second phone call. I'm just going to let the beeps go. Um, So these babies are left in these physical states of absolute terror. And if they're growing in that state of absolute terror, they're going to be developing and adapting to a terrorizing environment, not a safe and secure environment. So the full potential of what they could be is now being diminished greatly because the body's now preoccupied with saving itself versus growing and developing and playing and maturing in a healthy way. So there's a very good chance that a lot of these kids are going to leave with dissociative disorders, with dissociative identity disorders, the disorders that are affected by long-term stress at much younger ages. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Uh, let's talk about attuned communication because that's, uh, that's another positive aspect of mindfulness that I, I really like, both the verbal and the nonverbal aspects of that. I'll give a really amazing example. So I was working with this little baby that was two. I was working with the mom and the baby, and there was a suspicion that something happened to this little girl. Um, Because she's two, it's very hard for them to articulate and and put in the right context and meaning of what's happened to them. So with kids, you can can, um, read an awful lot by their bodies and by their emotions and by their sensations. So this little girl was in my office and she got really stiff and she just she was she was playing in a corner and then she got all stiff, turned around, sat on her mom and gazed out the window. And I said to the mom, does this happen to you frequently? Does this happen to the little girl frequently? And the little girl, um, the mom said it's been happening a lot since the suspected incident. And then the little girl sort of came out of the trance that she was in and she was screaming and I felt terrified. And it's been a long time since I felt terrified in my office. Like, it's probably been about 10 years since human behavior has scared me. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was very strange that I was feeling that feeling of terror. And then it dawned on me, this isn't mine. This is this little girl's terror. 
So I said to the mom, are you scared right now? And she said, yes. And I said, I don't think this is ours. I think it's hers. So then I said to the little girl, do you have really big feelings that almost hurt your body? And she said, "Uh uh-huh. And then I said, okay, I can help you with those. As an adult, I can come in and I can assist you with those feelings. And so I did a few uh, safety exercises and soothing exercises. And within 30 seconds, she was okay. And the mom said it hasn't happened since. That is what attunement really is. Mm-hmm. It's about being able to almost telepathically pick up on what those infants and babies feel. And that makes them feel secure if they can feel like they're attuned to. And it also gives us an opportunity to understand what these children are actually trying to communicate in these nonverbal moments. Excellent. And, and and related to that is empathy in my mind, you know, being able to know and feel what others feel, right? Absolutely. And that is, and empathy is a very sophisticated thing. To feel what other people feel is a very intimate experience. And um, in order to feel what other people feel, you've got to feel it yourself, but you need to be able to distinguish between is this mine or is this yours? Because we all project those emotions onto other people. As human beings, this is happening all the time. And it's very important to be able to distinguish, is this me? Because if this is me, I can do something with it. If it's them, then I'm going to have to help and change how I act and behave in order to help my fellow human feeling safe and secure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next on the topic list is insight and uh, interoception and neural perception. Introspection, introception, um, these are words that have been coined by uh, neuroscientists in, in describing what, it, what being able to go in inside your own body and feel what you feel and know what that is. So um, if you have a pulling in your solar plexus, introspection is the capacity to go in and, and just sit with that feeling. So the feeling can then sort of explain itself. Um, this is a very sophisticated task, right? So when you ask little kids, like, like, you know, why are you doing this? Most of them don't know why they're doing it because they don't have the brain capacity. As an adult, you should be able to go in and say, why are you doing this? And they should be able to take the time to gather all the information that's coming from their bodies as well as their emotions to inform them of where they're at in that moment. Mm-hmm. Intuition. Intuition? There's sort of a difference between instinct and intuition. Instinct is what really does come from those primary, um, the basic brain structures that are there when we're born, the reptilian and mammalian brain. That's almost all instinctual. That's the hardwired stuff. Intuition is sort of this always gathering of information that isn't really tangible, right? So intuition is picking up on sensations or picking up on just little weird knowings or following um, a feeling and, and giving that feeling some credit. And, and that's not something that we really teach our, our human beings at the moment is to follow and understand their own intuition. Mm-hmm. There's a point you made in there that I put an asterisk by because I, I, I wasn't aware of it, but I, I guess at some level I did know that, that lying is a natural childhood event and part of healthy development, but children should, you know, grow out of lying as, as their brain structures develop. Absolutely. Right? Right. Why do we lie? We lie to stay out of trouble. Right. Right? And children don't want to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. And they, they, um, so I think like when, when, when I think it, it, it it benefits us, benefits us all understanding that when children start to figure out that they can do this, they're going to they're gonna use it mm-hmm. because it's, it's sort of a handy-dandy little way to get myself out of trouble. 
but it also prevents that child from learning to manage the vulnerability of making the mistakes. Mm -hmm. And we have to manage the vulnerability of making mistakes and understanding that all human beings make mistakes, and it's the vulnerability of the event is, that is as important in, in repairing relationships as it is instead of skirting and lying. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot, lot in this book about attachment and connectedness, not just parent-child, but, but community in general. And um, in, in the, the last point on this mindfulness chapter about morality, you say that mindfulness is the ultimate human bonding experience and trauma and dissociation and chronic stress take away uh, mindfulness, usurp mindfulness. Absolutely. You can't have both at the same time. So you have a brain structure that is designed to be very aware, very attuned, um, to know what it knows, to, to be able to conceptualize and understand the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. Whereas dissociation is the polar opposite. It doesn't, you're not supposed to know, right? It's hiding knowledge. It's being unaware of what's happening in order to save you. And, um, if you spend enough time having enough events being dissociated, you actually become really superphobic of mindfulness. The body doesn't, if the body is always in a state of chronic stress, it's going to make that its normal. And it's not going to be very open to changing because that's an emergent state. So the body's like, okay, things are bad, and we need to do this to manage this badness or this awfulness or this danger. And if you start to relax it, it's not going to want to relax. So it becomes uh, the polar opposite of mindfulness. Okay. And we only have about four or five minutes left to talk about uh, the, the bulk of the book. Uh, you mentioned early on that dissociation is like the black sheep of the mental health family. So let's talk about what dissociation and dissociative disorders are exactly. So, so basically what dissociation is, is, is in, a, in a really short nutshell, it is the inactive defense system kicking in. So it is the part of the body that when the body realizes or feels like it has no other way to get out, that it has no escape, it will start to dissociate. Dissociation is in, it, it occurs in every single mental health issue because it is a neurobiological issue. It's not a, um, it's not a disorder. It's actually an, a normal thing for the human body to do. It becomes disordered if the stress is too much, too long, prolonged, too chronic, or not cared for enough after the event. <laughs> so if, this, if, the, if the human body is chronically in this state of disengagement, um, where the thalamus is always scattering information, you're going to have a human being that does not have a good understanding of how they feel. They cannot regulate themselves. They, they don't have the capacity to pull in and be objective. They just run from emotion to emotion to emotion without ever really, really knowing how to calm themselves down, and that becomes disordered. The, the mind will then become disordered. And um, like a, there's a lot of controversy about dissociative identity disorder, which kind of baffles me. Um, but I think I think the understanding of you know we don't really believe that there's different people inside one human being. What we do know is that when dissociation is happening during very vital developmental ages and stages of life, then those ages and stages of life and those emotions are going to be scattered and dissociated. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's emotions that sort of grow a sense of self that um, once it's happened, it's very hard to unhappen. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
Okay, so I have one minute for you to tell us about how creative meditations can be helpful in the, in these cases. <laughs> okay, so one minute. So what? What? Yeah, no. So mindfulness right now is being used all over the place, and it's it's um, really I think the the one big takeaway I have from my book is be careful. You will have people, a lot more people than you really realize, who likely are dealing with some type of dissociation, a little or a lot. And so when we start introducing meditations, we've got to be very, very sensitive to the fact that these are sensitive beings whose minds and bodies don't really want to be mindful or they don't know how to be mindful. So we have to be very, very soft and gentle and start really slow. Guided imagery or imagery in the front part of the head seems to be an excellent place to start because you start to exercise those brain structures without having to go into the deeper processing of awareness. Mm-hmm. And Great. so after you get those, yeah, Great. so it's just working on... on um, exercising with through guided imagery then after however long that body it takes for that human being to be able to manage mindfulness then you can start doing mindfulness way down the road fantastic unfortunately that's all the time we have we've been talking to christine forner her book is dissociation mindfulness and creative meditations i remind your listeners our listeners that if you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast you can catch up with us on youtube at good books radio strong and cook i'm your host dr john cook thanks for listening and make it a great day